All right. Oh, wow. I can apply effects to this audio. Don't. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> this is Beers with Hallows. Threats, Beers, and Mosquitoes. Uh, welcome or welcome back. This is Beers with Talos, episode 120. Today is April 6th, 20. We've never 20. had the opener, like, right at the opening. <laughs> Man, we are joined today by, usually, as usual, that's what I'm trying to say, Matt Holney and Liz Waddell. And joining us today in the guest chair is Nate Pores. Nate, how are you doing today, buddy? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Nate joins us from the Talos Incident Response Group. Uh, we are going to start today off the same way we start off every episode. We're going to go around the table and get a quick opening shot. I'm on a crap ton of cold medicine, so I'm just going to do mine first before I forget what we're doing. And I wanted to take a quick second to, um, I want to discuss a, a, a thing that's going on in my neighborhood. So, you know, we, we're coming out of this pandemic, right? And like, I live in a neighborhood that's very popular and in Tampa, which is a very popular, you know, real estate market right now. So we've gotten a lot of new neighbors over the last couple of years, like during the course of this pandemic, and we haven't met most of them. However, there is one thing that has brought this neighborhood together. And I have actually met more people in the last, I don't know, probably six days than I have in two years of living in this house. Nats. And I'm not talking like, like, like little, like you have a couple of fruit flies. I'm talking like a biblical amount of gnats that have like descended upon our neighborhood and are literally like getting into everybody's houses to the point that like people like are coming alive and starting new like neighborhood uh, groups on, I've, I've seen them in like, I've been invited to a telegram group for my neighborhood. So like, do people have a plan of action? For oh that, yeah. Or? Yeah. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm talking like there was, there was a plan of action. Everybody has found this one well, particular the, the device. The first thing you do is you don't say Nat. If you don't say Nat, then the Nats won't be there. Cause we don't They'll talk about kinda, Nats they, now. Just, you know, it's, it's, that's the, that's the Florida approach. Like if I don't like something, we just don't talk about it. So <laughs> we're not talking about gnats. Oh no. They make these devices that have like a little like blue light, or like a, like a black light type thing on them that oh, like yeah. attracts yeah. them and like, a has bug like zapper. A, well, no, no, this is not a bug no, zapper. No, it's the vacuum no. one, right? Yes, exactly. It has a fan on it and it sucks them in. And then there's like a, like a yeah. fly trap, like fly paper on the inside, like a sticky pad uh-huh. and they stick to that and then they just die there. So oh, that's it's like RSA. Yeah, pretty much. It's exactly <laughs> like the show floor. <laughs> like it just sucks you in and then you die there. So that's <sighs> so what's going on in yeah. my life. Other than um, I also apologize for, I, I don't know what my voice is going to sound like at the end of this podcast today, but we'll hope it at least stays where it's at for right now. I kind of like the, <clears throat> the dark and grumbly voice. Yeah, it, it does. Authoritative. It kind of sounds like, like the it. bottom of body bottle of Johnny Walker, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. You you just smoked like a whole bunch of cigarettes. (laughs) When I, when I tried out for the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra to sing for them, I got done with the, uh, the sight singing piece and the director's like, well, let's see how low you can go. And so I sang baritone. And so I kept going lower and I hit what I thought was my bottom, but he kept like driving me lower, driving me lower. And he's like, yeah, that and 
you know, a quart of vodka and you should be able to go down another two steps. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> is this before practice or just performances or what's the rule on the vodka consumption? Well, I mean, you got to get that tolerance up if you're going to be doing it on performance night. So I would say practices as well. I also so, say sight singing is the single hardest thing I've ever done, including reverse engineering. Well, no, before you go to Matt's thing, I want to know, did you, did you get it? Did you? Yes. Did they, I, I, you? I sang for a season with Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. He also has a pirate album. Matt. What's on your mind? I have two. <laughs> I have a Christmas album and a regular album. Available so 24 hours ago, I didn't know who Shel Silverstein was. I still don't understand how that's And now, possible. I didn't, I didn't know who he was. I was like, uh, like, like, and I found out, I don't even know, was it, why did I look this up? Did you talk, you talked because about Because of JJ's profile picture. Bon, bon you said, that's right. What? You said JJ looks like a young Shel Silverstein. And I immediately responded to you Googling because I didn't know who he was. And at first I looked at the pictures and I was like, ah, kind of a little bit. And then I started figuring out who he was and I lost my damn mind because the same Should person- Should be the poet wrote, laureate of the United States, by the way. This, I'm not sure you're going to get full support on that from everybody in the United States, <laughs> but some- but the same person that wrote A Boy Named Sue for Johnny Cash and won a Grammy for that song also wrote The Giving Tree, A Light in the Attic, and Where the Sidewalk Ends. And then, like, there's a whole other adult content, Shell Silverstein, After Dark events that, that we're not going to go into. So 10 o'clock show a, gets a little blue. Yeah, what an <laughs> incredible life that guy led. Yeah. So, yeah. And not to mention, he was legitimately roommates at this, with Waylon Jennings and Johnny Cash at the same time in, in like, a two-bedroom apartment in Nashville. Like, so I want to party. With we never guys. actually finished this part of the conversation because this was part of our conversation last night. What are the sleeping arrangements? If those are the three people, who's double bunking? Who gets their own? Oh, room? Shell got the couch. You know that's true. Come on. She didn't even get a room. <laughs> you're probably right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You were probably he got right. A box to keep his shit in between the couch and the TV, and had to sleep on the sofa. Like that was it. Although I'm looking, I'm looking at the picture on Shel Silverstein's Wikipedia entry, and it is the picture that they used as the author's picture on the back cover of The Giving Tree, and he looks like a guy that you would punch, and then he would just look at you. And you would be like, I've made an error. <laughs> like his head is built like it can receive punches. But we're also no talking problems. about Waylon Jennings and Johnny Cash as so, the, uh, <laughs> like that. Come on, like that's, But they are. I don't think they're built. Their heads aren't built like this. They're like they. I think I think they've had enough drugs between the two of them to like ignore a certain amount of blows. That's fair. But like this guy's cranium is built to let you punch him while the brain remains relatively intact. Is what it looks like. <laughs> Yeah, I just saw another picture of him and like Mel Tillis is in it and Jerry Reed. It's like all of like the outlaw. Jerry like, Reed. Yeah, yes. Convoy. I was I was that on there, but yeah. Smokey and the Bandit, Convoy, lots of yeah. good ones. Yeah, Shelf Silverstein looks like he would just take you out. I would never punch him in the first place. Like, No. I, yeah, no, no. You would be doing something really bad if you punched no, him. No, if you're in San he Francisco, if you're in San Francisco at a Chinese bar that has a Hobbit rock auditorium um, and you see this guy in the corner, just leave him alone. Like it's, it's not a time to explore your life options. That was oddly specific, but I'm down Very with where specific. you're going. Yeah. Liz, what's on your mind today? 
Well, I guess speaking of San Francisco, um, I have learned that I um, I am I am middle aged, and I need to I need to admit it, and I need to plan accordingly. So I went to San Francisco this weekend for the Edwardian Ball, That's right. which is not actually about the Edwardian times. It is about the a tribute to Edward Gorey. It's an annual event that's been put off for a couple of years because of, you know, the pandemic. And, but it's pretty much like the best dressed, like it's not costume per se. I don't know how to explain it. Go look it up. Like you'll see all the wonderful things that people wore. And the first night there I wore, you know, a very long skirt with, with this is a multi-night gala. I was, I went for two nights, went for Friday and Saturday and very long skirt and heels and it was a multi-level event and to which I found out that all I wanted all I was concerned about was not falling over and tripping so hold on Mitch and I have sat in Vegas and watched young women yeah have the same experience yeah like it was a it was like a two-hour sport for us at some restaurant the drunken we were giraffe at. girls yeah yes yeah yes. it was just hot, yeah, yeah that was very accurate that's a very uh, yes like the, <laughs> So it's not a middle age thing. Like it's just a no. The middle age thing is accepting that you were you were not going to put up with this anymore. And so the next night, it, I Smart. had like this gorgeous 1930s gown that I spent a very long time like you know hemming and making to fit me. And then I was like, it is too long, and I'm going to trip over it. So I just wore docks and like a, a goth dress and a corset. Yeah, that was that was my admitting was okay. No, I can't wear the fancy dress anymore. You have to make things that are appropriate for your age or you will die. Or just have you a You really can wear the time. fancy dress and like chalks, right? Well, Good. I consider it, but it was just so long that I would still be tripping over it. Like uh, going up and downstairs yeah, in a long dress with a bum ankle <laughs> and just, yeah. It was, so you know, I will tell what you. What you're truly admitting is that I'm short. young giraffe can fall over and survive. Right. Middle-aged giraffe falls over and is in rehab it for a few months. It takes your ankle you 12 weeks to, to heal. Yeah. This is, yeah that's no, it, not- does, it does not take 12 weeks to heal. I injured this ankle being a drunk giraffe in July of last year. And it is still like not in good shape. And I have been to rehab. I have been through physical therapy. And so that was pretty much my thought was if I fall, I am not getting back up and I will be paying for this for like six months. And it terrifies I have, me. I have really bad news for you. Me and our man, Warren, uh, went over a fence and I went down a wall and snapped my ankle. What was that, Matt? Three years ago? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's still screwed up. Like I, I, so when I did my paramedic, man, like when, when I did my paramedic clinicals in, you know, I was 20, I think, uh, in Baltimore. We're just getting like all of Matt's former employments. I, I did my paramedic clinicals where we did the ride along in what's called Superstation one in Baltimore, (laughs) which is like where the rescue unit is. And they have the old school brass poles that you can go down. And so at the end of one of the shifts that I did, I went to get on the pole and you just, it's pretty, it's real simple. You just kind of like press your arms to your chest around the pole and the friction slows you down. Well, I was carrying my binders that I did my clinical notes in. And when I went to push it together, there was insufficient friction friction for my ass. (laughs) And I went straight down and rolled both my ankles and I crawled out of the fire station because I was like, I was like, nobody can see me like this. This is like, no, nobody can see me. And so I crawled out of the fire station. I got into my manual Chevy Cavalier and drove home. I had no medical insurance at the time. Never got them looked at. 
flash forward to roughly the same period of like four or five years ago, maybe, I see Craig Williams and I'm like, it is time to kick Craig Williams in the ass. And I go to kick him and my ankles every now and then will just naturally roll themselves. And my plant foot rolled my entire weight on it. I like flicked his butt as I fell over and he turned around like, what are you doing? And I had to have Nigel take me to the um, emergency <laughs> care, whatever the, the buildings that you have. Um, and so, yeah, my ankles have never been right since age 20. Yeah. yeah I, I will give you just what, I'll leave you one thing to give you an idea of the type of people who are attending this. Somebody cut in line in the bathroom from in front of me and she had a live chicken on her shoulder. And I was like, I guess if you No, have, you let them cut. You got, yeah. I was you like, I guess that's just the express pass. I mean, I didn't know, like, did the chicken really have to pee or like what was going on? Like why this chicken well, was like, but I was like, what if it's an forth. attack chicken? I, yeah. I'm not questioning it. You, you have a chicken. You get to go She's first. She's like, you got a problem with me. You got a problem with the chick. Oh crap. Guys, Nate's still here. Hey, how you doing, buddy? (laughs) I'm doing good. All right. So I don't have quite as exciting a story related to injuries as Liz and Matt here. Mine is more in the theme of Mitch's wildlife story. Um, it's happened in the last 24 hours, believe it or not. Um, so where I live, Arlington, Virginia, right next to DC, isn't really what you'd consider an urban environment or it is an urban environment, not what you consider a, um, I guess, nature habitat. However, uh, in the last 24 hours, somebody tweeted out in the capital area that a fox snug up behind her and bit her ankle <laughs> as she was walking to work. We were like, Got okay, by wrote a that fox? off by a fox. Like, okay, a little weird. And then this fox's rampage continued um, about an hour or two later. It's got a taste for blood now. Yeah. So now that this fox had acquired the taste for human flesh, um, <laughs> he went after <laughs> a member of Congress, believe it or not. Oh, no. Also bit this U.S. representative on the ankle. The press statement said from his staff said that it was inconclusive whether the fox had actually pierced flesh or not, but definitely damaged the member How of Congress. How is that How? inconclusive? You have the part you need to I, determine that. I was wondering that myself, but that's what they said. Inconclusive. Fox ran off. Congressman got his rabies shot. Eventually, Capitol Police did take take this fox into custody. And based on the pictures I saw, the fox was definitely unrepentant. A proud fox. It was a proud fox. I saw it as well. He needed a tiny hat, though. I think if he'd had a tiny hat, everyone would be on its side. But yeah, and of course, like there's, you know, what did the fox say? Um, You know, is he going to be the next pundit in Fox News? It's like so many, so many questions. Well, I mean, as long as the fox, like, I, I I have questions about this. Like, okay, the one, the woman got bit, like, it snuck up behind her and bit her on the ankle. I can get that. This senator, you, I'm assuming it was male. You said he, right? It was a, it was a, it was, yep. it was probably wearing pants, presumably at that time. I don't see a lot of uh, senators or reps walking it's, in, walking around the Capitol in shorts. I don't want to see them in shorts. I don't know. Maybe I just think that like, like senators and representatives walk around with like, you know, more of an entourage than they really do at times. But I'm just wondering how this Fox like gets to the, the rep and gets to the congressperson bites them and runs away. All of this happens and we're still not sure if there was like any bleeding or not. Like, I mean, I, I don't understand how that, that's the part that is kind of confounding to me if it was inconclusive. What we actually wanted to talk about today though, and the reason that we have brought Nate with us is not actually to talk about 
rapscallion foxes parading around the Capitol and proudly biting our elected members of Congress. But we want to talk about the circumventing of multi-factor authentication. So this is something that's it's come a few times. Liz, uh, you brought this up as, as a topic you want to talk about today. We've had a, a couple of recent issues that brought some of these things to light. And we want to talk about like how we, we, we talk all the time about how multi-factor can prevent so many things in the security space. A simple implementation of multi-factor authentication covers a multitude of problems and, and really gives it a good bit of security. However, but not too simple, not too simple. Yeah, you don't want you don't want your two factor authentication to be too simple. That's true. Your, your implementation. And I think we'll get into that too. Like, but I say, however, it all smart. depends on you know, surprisingly, the users and how it is implemented at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think that that goes back to no single tool or technology is going to be your absolute one hundred percent. I am guaranteed. You have to you have to manage it, and you have to manage how it's being used. And the reason that I invited uh, Nate to come on is Nate is one of our our, our favorite job title at, at Talos is one of our incident commanders. Uh, so he is in the trenches fighting these things every day, and and I think you know. I've started seeing some trends and incidents he was reporting on as well. So uh, I thought he would be a good person to come in and kind of talk about what we're seeing. Really, I guess the question is, how would an adversary or a threat actor, uh, how would they bypass multi-factor authentication, right? This thing is supposed to help us. So Nate, like what, what are some of the ways that you've been seeing that actors have been kind of getting around this? First, I want to say, like we've been talking about, no MFA is bad MFA. Anything you're doing is better than just username password. But as we've been seeing, adversaries have been bypassing this. So let's talk about our normal phishing attacks first. You get an adversary come in, kingfisher at AOL.com, sends a bunch of emails to your organization's users, entices a couple of them to click on it, maybe download some malware, in this case, provide username password. Uh, and then they use that username password to log in anywhere that's not protected by MFA. What we've been seeing an uptick in recently is um, adversaries logging into web portals or other resources that are protected by MFA. So that was a bit of a head scratcher and we had to go figure out how they were doing that. Um, turns out there are a couple ways they've been doing it. Uh, one, the more popular ways we've been seeing recently is more sophisticated phishing. So the adversary will send a link, the user will click on it, they'll enter their username and password but it doesn't stop there. The adversary will then present a second page asking them for an MFA code. Um, when the user enters that code, it's captured by the adversary. And if it's a time-based passcode, sometimes the adversary uses it immediately to log in. If it's a different kind of code that persists longer, uh, the adversary can use it at a later date. So that's one method where the adversary used passcodes. Other method that we've seen recently is called prompt bombing. And this is, if you've seen some MFA implementations before where the uh, user receives a push notification that they have to accept, mm -hmm. what the adversary will do is they'll go ahead and use the username and password. Notably, no, no phishing beyond the username and password is required. This is, could just be standard phishing as you've seen it always before. Then that prompt will go to the user and if it's during their usual business hours, uh, some users will go ahead and just accept that prompt. 
accepting that it's a normal part of their workflow. Another alternative to that, and this is where the prompt bombing name really comes from, is the adversary will spam the user at an inconvenient time with dozens or hundreds of these prompt requests. So if you're a user at 2 a.m. getting all these prompts over and over and over again, eventually you might just accept it to stop the pain and get some sleep. Uh, and then the adversary is in the account. Those are the two biggest methods we've seen recently. Yeah. So prompt bombing, like to me, is just that is uh, attacking by annoying you. Mm-hmm. So like the Urkel, the Urkel thing or something. We're just like, I will just accept this to make it go away. It is so classic in the arc of security history for us to have invented something like two-factor authentication. And we're like, it's going to be really cool. So you just have to take this little digit and you put these digits in, and then you have to have this thing in order to have the digits to put in here. And then that way, you know that the person logging in is that person who has that thing. And then we're like, "Uh, that's pretty inconvenient. What if we just, every time we needed to, popped up a little alert on their phone and then they could just push a button and it would go away. And then so we've weakened two-factor authentication by making it more convenient, which is like every security problem ever wrapped up into a little parable. Yeah. There's always the balance of security and convenience, right? Like security doesn't have to be inconvenient, but high security is never extremely convenient. Like that just doesn't work that way. We were talking about how the most secure form of multi-factor authentication is actually hardware tokens you receive, like a YubiKey, for example. It's pretty much the gold standard in an MFA, very hard to abuse. However, it's also incredibly hard to use for the user. So, you know, think about your IT department trying to mail out these MFA keys to every single user. Every time they lose the key, they have to replace it. They have to figure out methods if the user loses it, how to authenticate them until they get another token. It's just, it's a little bit of a nightmare from the user experience perspective. And that just goes to the interplay you're talking about between convenience and security. There, there have been some convenient implementations of various forms of two-factor, especially like biometrics. Like fingerprint scanners showed up on laptops for a while, you know, and in phones, uh, although they've recently gone back away in iPhones. But, you know, they have their, their face reader now. So that's, you know, but that, that is another example, I guess, where something that was made even more convenient, you had a fingerprint scanner on your phone, well, now you just got to look at it because, you know, apparently people can't be put out to put their thumb on the button anymore. So we had to get rid of the button. I don't know. I don't know. The button on my iPad never works. And it's always me like, shove, like, did my thumbprint change? Like, did I try and like, and I don't know if they're just always covered in craft glue or what is going on. But like, I feel like I have to reset my thumbprint on my iPad like every month because of my, I don't know, maybe I'm just evolving and I'm going to evolve and have no fingerprints. But craft yeah, glue I mean, is the key to a bank heist. Got it. Biometrics, though, I mean, I think that is something that we've we've worked into a lot of things, right? And so we've got you know that factor for which for the for a MacBook that's a single factor, right? Because you're just using the touch or your password. But I do know that you know some people like Duo and other places have actually integrated those biometrics, so that can become your second factor or your multi-factor. Matt, um, I know like. At the start of the Ukraine invasion, that there had been some discussion of this activity occurring with some of the Eastern European groups. Is that something you've seen? I don't think we've seen, trying to think on our work with Duo. I think most of what we've seen is just indications of brute forcing on two-factor, like looking at the telemetry, where it's like, okay, I don't think they're bombing the user with, with requests for authorization, but they're just 
not realizing that they're hitting a two-factor authentication account. So we're actually able, because of the telemetry that we gather, to kind of identify where this was sourced from. And so to set up a conversation we may have a little bit later, some of the source IPs for what we were seeing telemetry as being the the problem children were actually uh, routing devices that we suspected of being infected with Cyclops Blink. Uh, so they were pivoting through those devices to deliver their authentication requests and just not not knowing that they were hitting a 2FA barrier or caring that they were hitting a 2FA barrier. Um, so that has actually been helpful in that regard. But no, I don't think I've seen any 2FA. I'm not aware. Like, like it's, it's you know, Ukraine's a really big place. It's, it's the second largest <laughs> country in Europe behind Russia. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a big place. So there's lots we don't see, but I don't think we've seen anything um, on that. Well, uh, but this is a continuation of like, like this is the thing um, we're I, like, we've been aware of two factor authentication abuse for a while. And so like the earliest we've seen that I was aware of were some um, Iranian actors who were going after education. Uh, and it, so education obviously has a real difficult time with two factor authentication because they just have this constant like churn of, of students through there. And so they're, it's a fairly permissive thing. But what they were doing was asking for, like, like sending, a, sending a phishing email that dropped you to a phishing site that captured your password, and then also said, two-factor authentication currently unavailable. Please provide us one of your one-time passwords um, to provide you access. And then it would capture that one-time password, then forward you to the web page. You would log in again, and it would work. But that one-time password would still be valid because it was never used against a two-factor authentication implementation. It was only passed through that phishing thing. So then they were able to use the stolen credentials and the one-time password and the username to then log in to the two-factor authentication credential pieces. So look, it definitely, like, even in all of this, two-factor authentication raises the bar. But there are there are definitely things you need to be aware of in terms of, of efforts by bad guys to, to get around it. So, Nate, when you guys were investigating these things, and I think for the most part, what we saw were mainly using this for business email compromises, you know, as that initial attack vector. Well, as you, you first start digging through this, like, what are some of the key logs or other places that you guys are looking for in your investigation that would help somebody out who is like, oh, I may be a victim to this. How do I figure out this is what's occurring? The breadcrumbs we've been following the most successfully have been related to IP addresses. Um, captured in these logs. So in the in most MFA implementations, your logs will include the IP address that originated the authentication request resulting in the multi-factor authentication request to the user. We've also been using some user interviews, but in many cases, you know, users will forget what they did a month ago. Something, I should say, some of these attacks where they use passcodes that didn't expire, they happen a month or more in the past. So user wow. might not have a good memory of what they did, you know, one time six weeks ago. I, I can't say I'd remember every way I authenticated no. six weeks ago. I mean, if you think about it, how often are you actually properly asked to use one of your one-time use codes? It's not very much. So those are, that'll probably stay green for quite some time yeah. on the attacker's end. Going back to the initial question about log sources we talked about, your MFA logs, some other useful things. In the case of business email compromise, which we were talking about, a lot of organizations use O365. So O365 audit logs have been a key source for us 
Again, we look for pattern divergence in IP address, user agent string, sometimes even their pattern of life, you know, when they log in through the day. Is it at 2 a.m. their their local time? Um, so we, we pull the thread from there, but those are some of the first go-tos I can think of. It's not super surprising that the the big part of the problem here would be, you know, attacking users. That's always the weak link that, you know, most attackers choose to go for. Compared to how often we see things like you're talking about notification bombing, you know, people phishing for the codes, doing that kind of thing. How often are we seeing that compared to just system misconfiguration? Worse, like super targeted activity, like up to spear phishing, SIM swapping, social and like direct social engineering. Like I would assume we would see that the least and then we'd see misconfiguration. And But the vast majority would be in user land. Yeah. So I would absolutely agree with you. Users are the weakest link in the technology stack and educating them is absolutely key. That if you can take one thing away from this uh, podcast, that would be it, educate your users. But to your question about misconfiguration, uh, it's very, very common. I think a lot of people, when they think about cybersecurity, think that think of black hats out there developing zero-day attacks, things that have never been thought of before. You know, it, it's been popularized in a lot of films lately as well. But I say the majority of attacks don't exploit something that's unknown. They exploit something that's misconfigured. I think the most classic example, and that ties in with what we're talking about today, is some type of login portal that doesn't use MFA. The organization thinks they're covered, but they forgot to cover that uh, particular portal with MFA. Or, you know, any number of other misconfigurations come up. We see AWS S3 bug gets publicly exposed now and then, uh, and attackers can use that to grab information without even doing anything else. So um, why burn an O day when exploit Wednesday is just around the corner. And then as always, vulnerability management, huge, huge topic. Why go out and find something new to do if target hasn't patched their infrastructure and there's some very easily available public exploits that are usable on that publicly exposed infrastructure your target has uh, deployed. So in terms of alerting for geolocation discrepancies, so if somebody had had alerts set up for, I, you know, for geolocation, that's something that could have helped catch this earlier, right? Yeah, I would say so. I, there, it always depends on your vertical and your type of business, right? So if you have users, I mean, we we're talking about educational institutions earlier. If you've got users spread across the globe, your SOC will be facing alert fatigue if you're looking at user logins for um, across the globe continuously. However, if you're if you believe that your user base is fairly geographically centralized, setting up those alerts can be absolutely key. You can also pick what you consider certain danger zones and you know, if you're U.S.-based, maybe you wouldn't expect to see a login from Zimbabwe based on your particular uh, business model. You can set that up. So it wouldn't have to be everything for it. And it could be particular spots you've identified around the globe from which you would never expect to see a legitimate login. What are some of the other alerts? You Obviously, I can think of things like enrollment of a new device to to my multi-factor, anything else that would help catch this earlier in the detection phase? We talked about geography. Like you said, enrollment of new new devices could be, uh, again, it depends on how you do your business model. I, I would just say that any SOC thinking about this should just sit down and tabletop out what unusual activity looks like and what your threshold might be. I was actually threat hunting 
in a user's or in a, a customer's environment recently for MFA accounts that had been abused. And I tried this model where I, I looked for, through users and said, all right, let's look for users where most of the time in their particular product, in this case was Duo for multi-factor authentication. Um, I said, let's look for users that 90% or more of the time use push and then 10% of the time use mobile passcodes. And I'll tell you right now, frankly, it was a spectacular failure. <laughs> you know, I only caught about, in my modeling, I only caught about half of the compromised accounts. Hmm. That just goes to say that there's a lot of divergence in user behavior. But thinking creatively in terms of that, heuristics, user behavior, pattern of life for a normal versus compromised account looks like can be key to setting up those good alerts. So that that does all... Uh kind of ring true with the basic themes that we often see, right? Like users are always going to be vulnerable. Your shit's only as good as it's configured. And you've got to educate the users against what they're not supposed to do. I mean, you can see so many, but there will always be some certain portion of users who just don't care. I mean, that's why we were talking a couple of weeks ago about the, that one organization that literally just pays people for their, for their corporate credentials, like for their corporate mm-hmm. network credentials. And like, like, oh, it's for salary research or whatever the hell they say it's for. You know, they're, and people just give it up for like not even a good amount of money, like, like $10, $20. Like people are just like, oh, sure, have my login. Here's your $5 Target gift card. <laughs> right, that's yeah. probably expired. But whatever. That they stole from somebody else and they're just given to you. Right. Uh, yeah, I think the other thing to you um, out of what Nate said is kind of like the takeaway to you is like know what good is and know what bad is, right? Like if I go into an environment and I, you know, as an investigator, am asking you something, is this expected behavior? Is this, you know, something that is a normal part of your workflow and you say you don't know, that is where I start going like, oh, there's probably a lot of things in your environment that you don't know about. If you don't know what... A normal day, what normal good looks like. Organizations almost have to plan for that lowest common denominator. You know, the user that doesn't care is willing to give up their credentials. So one common thing I talk to customers about when they're asking me for help planning is you need to think past that initial breach, you know, your perimeter defenses, start thinking, how are you going to limit an adversary once they get into that environment? Uh, and that goes in open a, a whole can of worms about uh, zero trust, least privilege, all these other buzzwords that get thrown around. But um, bottom line is there are great ways to plan for um, limiting an adversary's access and slowing them down post-compromise as well. Uh, Before we close out today, Matt, I want to jump back to something you kind of alluded to a minute ago. And that was an Mm. update on something we talked about two, three episodes ago now. So we we had, when we released uh, a blog post on Cyclops Blink, we chatted about that. Uh, here on the podcast, and you sent around, uh, you sent us a link earlier that had a, a, a bit of an update on Cyclops Blink and a Justice Department announcement related to that. Just a, like, so it's, this is, I guess, you know, for us breaking news, so. Um, here I'm on sure the 6th, depending yeah, on when you're listening to this. Yeah, <laughs> whenever you listen to this. So the main piece is, it doesn't, uh, so that the Justice Department got court approval to go after the C2 controllers, which appear, if, if this is written correctly, and so I'm always kind of hesitant to, to believe the technical details in a legal document or a PR document, you know, from, from the government. Um, it appears that the C2 for this was also on compromised firewalls, and they were able to actually get onto those firewalls and remove the capacity for those 
suffices to act as C2s, thereby, thereby kind of beheading the botnet. You know, this is quite the thing because I would anticipate there's no there's no information about this, but I would anticipate that those C2 controllers are probably not all in the United States, um, if any of them are in the United States. So these were as actions taken by the FBI outside of their core jurisdiction. And so it's very, very interesting. Like this isn't an area of my specialty at all. Um, uh, so that was my first thought was saying like, you know, where were these things? What was done? Um, they're very careful to say that they didn't touch any of the other affected devices. So those, all those devices still have that software running. So it's a bit like the, the situation that we had with VPN filter, mm-hmm. uh, where we, we hit the, we disabled the, or the, to be very clear, I say we kind of broadly, the Justice Department took care of the C2 servers by claiming the domain they were associated with. So all these devices are still vulnerable. They're still running this malicious code, but it has nothing to talk to currently. That's the but that could also current. change. I mean, I'm not familiar That's always with the, the deal, structure right? of this malware, but I mean, I would yeah. think it'd be built that it could reach out to another C2 if all else fails. Uh, it's it like like the thing I would be more concerned about is that these are reclaimed in some way. Um, they're recompromised and they're they're reset up as C two controllers. But if it's anything like what we saw VPN filter, they'll fall back onto a different set of they'll abandon this and fall back to a different set of infected devices or create a new net. Like this is essentially the the successor to to VPN filter. Yeah. So to be clear, um, it very much is yeah. VPN filter yeah. too, or you know the. Electric Boogaloo, whatever. Electric Boogaloo, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's just an interesting thing that happened today. Um, there, I'm interested in seeing kind of like some professional takes on, you know, some legal takes on on how this was done. And this was discussed. Hi, did you hear that, Twitter? Um, Matt wants to hear your take at K-Pike. <laughs> at K-Pike, hot take. Yo, Tell hit him me everything. Up. You Did internet you lawyers. In, slide into his DMs. He likes it's, that too. It's Rico, I'm sure. So this was discussed during the VPN filter operation. Um, like, like the FBI was 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 interested in doing something like this, and I didn't believe they would ever get approval to do it because of the the jurisdiction issues um, and the way the time timing worked because of the explosion of activity in Ukraine that we were concerned about um, and decided to go public with. Because of that, um, they ran out of time to, to pursue that. So it's interesting that this time around on Cyclops Blink, they were able to get to the point where they could do that. So very interesting, very interesting development. Uh, I'm kind of curious where most of these devices it's were 13 located. Or o- 13 or overseas. I'm, I just started digging into the warrants that are, are attached to that, the Justice uh, Department uh, notification. And whoo, those are fascinating. Um, they're redacted, <laughs> of course, but it's also, so they were using the probable cause was VPN filter, which I think is pretty cool that that ended up, so that ended up in a warrant. Dope. But it does say that the FBI identified 26 IP addresses associated with the devices, 13 in the U.S. and 13 overseas. Well, they were closely, it said in the uh, release, with the U.K. Uh, cyber, uh, cyber Security Center. Uh, so Probably in CSE. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering if they were all U.K.-based or around there. But they also worked with the manufacturer of the devices themselves to, uh, you know, they were, it said there that uh, WatchGuard was also part of the effort. It'll be interesting to see how that develops uh, as more information becomes available this week and next. We'll make sure to keep an eye on that and update you if anything pertinent, fun, and interesting comes of it. We are almost at the time where it's time to to start winding things down. Nate, I know you haven't joined us before, but we actually end our show the same way we start it and go around the table and get a closing thought and parting shot from everybody. 
sometimes end up falling into a YouTube hole in the process and it ends up being longer than the actual episode itself. So we'll start where we started last time. Matt, that puts you up first, buddy. Was I first? Well, I was, but I don't really have one. You were first. No, you I have to go I first. I don't have a story to tell, and my like throat is killing me right now. So I am about but done that's talking. The rule. Oh, it hurts so much. You Boy, have to go. Oh, he's fine. Mitch. Fine. God. Fine. Here's what I'm looking forward to for the next few weeks. Okay, guys. So I am finished. Just finished planning. My wife is going to join me for most of RSA and Cisco Live. As you guys know, those are in adjacent weeks this year. So what we're doing is I'll be going out to RSA, uh, come, you know, there at the beginning of June. And my wife is actually going to go visit her cousin, uh, also out in California, and come meet me uh, up at RSA the last couple of days with a loaded up camper van. And we are going to road trip down to Vegas from San Francisco we're going to hit Yosemite, Death Valley, Joshua Tree. I kind of want to hit Slab City, but I'm also a little sketched out to go there. So, but I do kind of want to see it. And if you've never seen that, I wholly encourage you to look it up on YouTube. And then we're going to show up in Vegas for Cisco Live and be out there for a few days. So I'm kind of excited to see, A, what condition I'm in at the end of this, being unused to traveling for long periods for so long. And B, uh, how a conference in Vegas is going to go after a week and or four days in a in a camper van. But I'm really, really looking forward to this trip. That's what I'm up to and what I'm excited about this week. Matt, it is now your turn. Now What's your closest? My favorite part of that story, which we don't need to get into, is you trying to convince the Cisco travel system that that is what was going to happen. Oh, it took so. a little bit of doing. But that was three separate trips booked. Like, this is what ended up happening. I can barely convince it to, like, accept my airplane. Like, much less, like, I don't know how you got a camper in. Oh, I didn't do the camper. Uh, the camper's all on me. But I had to do basically two one-way flights and a wholly separate hotel for the time I'm in Vegas. It was the only about, about the only way I could figure it out. The only thing that I'm still fascinated with is who would win in a fist fight between Waylon Jennings and Johnny Cash. This was a discussion. And this that was this was an hour long discussion we had last night. Were and you factor in their levels of sobriety? I, I uh, did. Different times in their life, you know. Yeah, like, or is that's it like fair. Kill Johnny Cash or you know Whiskey Waylon? Yeah. So. It's, it's a fair question. Uh, and, and as I was Googling around, just trying to like, first we had like, I think we established like sober, it seems like a fair fight. Like they're roughly the same height. Johnny Cash seems to be built a little thicker. So, and but in Googling, I did find a radio station for a place called, I think it was at Wolf County. I don't have it up. Um, it was like 99.9, The Wolf. They had a uh, Facebook page where they did a, a listener survey asking who would win in a fight between the highwaymen, which includes these two gentlemen along with Chris Christopherson and um, Willie. Uh, Willie Nelson. And so like me and Mitch immediately were like correctly pointed out, Willie Nelson is not in the running no. for winning this fight. That is, he, you just take Willie Nelson, you just put him on the he's, side. He's not even sure the fight's happening, to yeah. be honest with you. You're a national it's, treasure, Willie. You stay here and be he, safe. Well, yeah. Anyone gets close to you, he's just, just shaking push them his away. head. He's just like yeah. high on the side. I'm like, what are these fuckers? What are these guys? This, this is how his guitar got broken. <laughs> this is how he that's had to hold Okay, yeah. That's how he got that hole in the guitar. Yeah. So, um, uh, but uh, Johnny Cash won that survey. 
so the people of Wolf County have spoken. So if anyone has any reason why Waylon or Johnny would win one or the other, I'd be interested in knowing. I just put a picture of them up and said it looks like a fair fight. So I honestly I think, think in the highwaymen debate, scrappier. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the highwaymen debate, I think Christofferson might be the dark horse. I think he's got reach. He feels tall. Well, I mean, well, Waylon's 6'1 and Johnny's 6'2. I already looked that up last night. <laughs> so unless Christofferson's like NBA player tall. No, he's 5'10. What? Oh, okay. Never mind. Like, he's probably out then. Like. And Willie Nelson is five foot six. <laughs> I, as it works out, I got by by googling Chris Christopherson height. I got the entire lineup of the highwaymen. Uh, lineup of the highwaymen: Johnny Cash at six two, Waylon Jennings at six flat, according to this. I read six one last night. I, you know, I think it's within the margin of yeah, error sure. for nineteen seventies inches. Nineteen seventies inches. <laughs> Everybody was on cocaine. <laughs> Nobody knew how to work a tape measure. It was. <laughs> well, and a bunch of speed pills too. I think that was Johnny's thing, right? Well, he liked all the, he liked all the pills. I think Johnny, Johnny would take whatever you got at that point. I think. Uh, Liz, Damn what is on your mind? Closing thought, parting shot. Well, I mean, one, I'm actually, so Willie Nelson's ranch at, at Luck Reunion, at Luck, they're actually doing more concerts there, which I think is pretty cool. Because I think it's also like, he has just established a point in his career is like, you will just come see me and I'm going to play on my porch, which is, I think, the ultimate goal in life. Like, I will a thousand percent go to Willie yes. Nelson Ranch to listen to Willie Nelson play. So I guess my, you know, what I'm thinking about in the next couple of weeks is, you know, spring or as you know summer whatever we call it in texas because it's hitting like 90 degrees today but i am looking forward to actually getting like my deck you know made up with some pretty you know some probably some culinary flowers and just doing some you know just some general like spring cleaning and enjoying the outside i'm very nervous what matt's freaking out about right now I am looking forward to actually having some some good plants and other things. As right now, my backyard looks like a hell of a mess because I've been traveling too much. I've just been neglecting my home. Looking forward to that, which I think brings us to our our guest, our newbie. In his, it in does, his Nate. What is your closing thought for today? Take us home, yeah. buddy. I have been looking at something recently. I'm plotting. I don't know if the wife will let me do this. But uh, similar to Liz's springtime comment, I'm looking at these plant growing devices, for lack of a better term, you can put in your living room since I'm an apartment dweller. It's basically like two PVC pipes that go straight up. This place will mail you a bunch of plant inserts that you put in it. They claim 120 plants grow in a one square foot by six foot tall area. You're you're building Um, a vertical garden. Basically, yeah. Yeah. And it's, cool it's got like app controlled feeding and watering schedules and everything. I'm, as you can tell, I'm getting very enthusiastic about this. Price tag isn't as great. So I haven't convinced myself entirely yet. Kind of wondering if I can build this myself. They used to have this startup conference in Jacksonville called OneSpark. And there was a company there, it was like, I don't know, six, five, six years ago, seven years ago, maybe. They were doing vertical rooftop gardens as like a urban farming solution. And they were saying, like, mm-hmm. on the average, you know, city rooftop, like, even home, like, flat roof, like, I think they said, like, in 100 square feet of rooftop, you could grow the equivalent of, like, over an acre of produce, like, with vertical gardening. I don't know how true that is, but if that's the case, you're about to be sitting on a crap ton of produce, my man. I mean, the That'd second problem is I don't really like salad, but I'm dizzy. So- <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I want to thank everybody for joining us today. I want to thank you, Nate, for coming on and uh, chatting about MFA and your experience with that. Uh, and I want to thank you all for sharing and listening. And until next time, uh, stay safe, stay secure, and we will catch you later. 